Uh, I'm going to pause. I'm going to say a word of prayer. And then our sister, Katie Caparis, is going to read us uh, a very long passage that I will be pasting into the chat box if you'd like to follow along uh, from Acts chapter 4, the entire chapter. So let me say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much uh, just for the service for these, these brothers and sisters, for these neighbors that you've brought together, God. Um, Lord, we pray for the, for the rest of the service, Lord, for a blessing on the message, Lord. Um, I pray that I would get out of the way, God, and let you speak uh, through this teaching, through the preparation that you've put on me, Lord. I pray that you would be with us as we, as we partake in the Lord's Supper together. And Lord, right now, uh, perhaps the most uh, powerful thing that we can experience in the service is hearing your word read to us. And so just as you were with Richard reading, Lord, I pray that you'd be with Katie and give her clarity of mind and speech, Lord, relieve any stress or distractions from her and speak through her as she speaks your word to us. We pray all of this, God, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Katie, you can take over. Thank you. Acts chapter four. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his, this name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 
When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak of the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were one were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as there were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what it was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Katie. Let me just say uh, what a privilege it is to be speaking with you, to teach from the word of God uh, that we hear from each week and to con continue in this year-long uh, journey in the book of Acts that we started, uh, I think, nine weeks ago today. I'm so grateful that just in the last couple of weeks, we've gotten to hear from Pastor Jose Humphreys and, and Pastor uh, Annette Catino as they walked us through Acts chapter three, looking at the story of the lame beggar who was healed in a, in a very cosmic, supernatural way. And last week, uh, if you're with us hearing from Annette, that it is in the supernatural, right? It is in the descending of the Holy Spirit. It is in the healing of this lame beggar that the church, that God's church is birthed. And this morning, we see the ramifications, not only of the healing, from chapter 3, but of what Peter says after the healing. This beggar isn't only healed, but after the healing in the second half of chapter 3, Peter and John remind all those who are watching that what they just witnessed was a product of faith in the risen Jesus Christ. In Acts 3, verse 16, they say, The faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, here in chapter 4, the long passage that Katie just read to us. Now we dive into the consequences of this healing and of this proclamation of the power of Jesus Christ. This is a long passage. And so rest assured that we are not going to unpack every single thing 
in one short message this morning. But instead, I want to draw our attention to just two words that I think really begin to give us a sort of template for what we see in this passage and for what this passage might be saying to us today. Two words this morning. Boldness and common. Boldness and common. Now that word boldness, these disciples had it. However you want to define it, these disciples had some type of courage, some type of of fearlessness, a kind of boldness that pushed them to speak truth to those around them. Boldness that, as we see in verse 2, greatly annoyed some people. The priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, in, in later verses, right, the high priestly family. In other words, those in power. Most scholars call this group of people both the religious powerful and the political powerful of this time, of this moment that we're in. Peter and John and the disciples, they're speaking, they're acting with a certain kind of boldness that annoys the powerful. This boldness that leads to annoyance because they're teaching the people, the the community around them, they're teaching and proclaiming this power of Jesus Christ. And if we really think about it, that word annoy probably isn't quite a strong enough word, right? Because what, what do the powerful do after being annoyed? They don't get into an argument. They don't try to pick apart what Peter and John, what the disciples are teaching and proclaiming, some things we might do when we're annoyed. Nah, they arrest them. They arrest Peter and John. This is a powerful group. Powerful enough that when they hear something they don't like, when they hear something that threatens them, they have the power to try to silence that threat. They have the power to throw men in jail for healing a man and for proclaiming the power that healed that man. Why were these things so threatening to the priests, to the captain of the temple, to the Sadducees, to the religious and the political or the social elites, to the powerful? What are they saying And what have they been saying up to this point? I think if you could synthesize it into one phrase, they're saying that Jesus is both God and Jesus is the power of God. They say this in Acts 3 verse 15 when they call Jesus the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. This isn't just anyone. This isn't a random person that John and Peter decide to prop up. No, this is Jesus. He is the power of God. He embodies the power of God because he is God, because he is the author of life. The Sadducees, they're a religious sect in the first century, but unlike their their counterparts, the Pharisees, the Sadducees don't believe in bodily resurrection. And here, Peter and John not only are talking about Jesus resurrecting, but doing so with the power of God. And then on top of that, right, this group, if you're, you're a priest, maybe you're, you're the captain of the temple, you're some of the most elite, powerful people in this context, you control a lot, you wield a lot of influence. On top of that, you hear Peter and John saying in Acts 3, verse 13, it is you You Jewish leaders, it is you who delivered Jesus over to be killed. It is you who denied the holy and the righteous one to be freed. You killed this author of life. And that's what we come to here in chapter 4, the opening of verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, this is what they were speaking. They're speaking to this growing community around them. They're speaking to the religious around them and to everybody They are saying, you have no idea who this Jesus is. 
And to the powerful who are hearing this, they are hearing, you have no idea who this Jesus is that you've killed. This Jesus who was raised from the dead. You see, they're bold. Peter and John are embodying boldness. And the powerful, they don't like it. They're annoyed. Last week, I uh, had the chance to watch, and maybe some of you have seen it, the new movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. It's a really fantastic uh, dramatization of the life of Fred Hampton, a key leader in the Black Panther Party in Chicago, who was assassinated by the police in a raid that has long believed to have been orchestrated by the FBI, and specifically orchestrated by the, by the then director of the FBI, J. J. Edgar Hoover. And while I don't want to get too deep into the movie, uh, or even in a conversation about Hampton's life and, and the Black Panthers, what really struck me when I was watching it, and then as I was reading through and preparing over this passage, was just how annoyed, how threatened the FBI and the local police department felt by Hampton and by the Black Panthers. There's a certain type of boldness that Hampton embodied, a boldness that led to the Panthers hosting regular free breakfasts for the children in their communities, that led to, to them actually collaborating with other groups of races. You can read about this. They, they joined uh, with, with the Puerto Ricans. They even joined with a group called uh, the, I think something like the Patriots, a group of white Confederate flag-waving men and women, and they joined with them for the betterment of their communities. Really incredible boldness, if you think about it. And in the midst of this, they're not only doing these things for the communities, but Hampton and his followers spoke boldly against police brutality, against political corruption, against vast income disparities that they were seeing. No amount of good deeds, no amount of free breakfast for kids, no amount of co collaboration across across divisions and across lines. No amount of that could have outweighed the threat that largely white men in power felt when confronted with the boldness of Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. And so quickly, the Black Panthers were labeled communist or Marxist or socialist because those words hold power and they can totally almost instantly transform someone's perception of someone else. The FBI would write up fake newsletters as if authored by Hampton or other members of the Black Panthers to rile up anger and resentment in the community. Hampton was arrested. This is a true story. He was arrested and sent to prison for a false allegation of stealing and distributing ice cream to kids in the neighborhood. He was sent to prison. The Black Panthers headquarters in Chicago was torched and burned down by the police department. And eventually Hampton was murdered by the police in a raid, all because Hampton was bold, all because he was bold and he spoke truth to power for the sake of his neighbors and for the sake of those who were being oppressed. It's boldness. Here in our story of, in, in Acts, fortunately, Peter and John are only thrown in jail for a night. And then because of their boldness and because of the very real miracle of the lame beggar who was healed and now standing with them as evidence of what has happened, those in power had nothing to say, verse 14. And though they let them go, what is the caveat that they include for their freedom? 
Verse 18, they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The religious powerful, the political, the social powerful, they felt threatened by Peter and John by these teachings and proclamations. And so they continued to lean into their power. Yeah, 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 we'll grant you freedom, but stop speaking of this power of Jesus. Stop speaking of this power that is in direct threat to our power. And I'm sure with an emboldened sense of conviction, we see Peter and John say, we can't not speak of what we are seeing, of what we are hearing from the power of Jesus Christ. They look at the council and they say, thanks for the offer, but no thanks. Who are we to remain silent? And then we're told in verse 21 that they are further threatened. We don't know exactly what that meant, but I'm sure that I'm sure more imprisonment was on the table, maybe some beatings, torture, things like that, maybe something worse, but they're threatened and then they're released. And what do they do when they're released? This is what is so amazing about these men and about even how we have seen them grow from Acts 1 to this chapter. What is so amazing about their boldness? Now, if it was me... And if all this happened, I think I would probably pick between one of two things. I would either, you know, if I had the strength and courage to withstand all these threats, a night in jail, everything, and then I was released, I I might go running through the streets, shouting at the top of my lungs, telling every single person about what I just went through, about what I just did, about my boldness and my courage, about how strong I was. Or I might be released, feeling pretty empowered, but also scared. And I would maybe walk down the street with my head down and not tell anybody about what I just did, about what I just went through. But what do these men do? They go to their friends, which I have to assume is at least part of a really large group, right? We're told that even in the midst of these threats and these arrests, that the the, the group of believers grew to about 5,000 in verse 4. They go to their friends and they pray. Verse 29, they say, Lord, look upon these threats we've received and grant to us to keep speaking your word with boldness. So they didn't puff up their chests to their friends, and they also didn't retreat. They didn't say, all right, guys, let's slow down. Let's make sure this doesn't happen again. No, they go to their friends. They lift up their voices to God and they say, God, we have been threatened, but give us your boldness. God, we have been threatened, but help us continue speaking your word. And when they pray, what happens? The place they are at literally shakes. I read someone say, this isn't God responding out of anger for what happened or anything like that. This is is God's pleasure embodied in this shaking. The place they're at shakes and the Holy Spirit consumes them and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness as we're told in verse 31. Willie James Jennings, uh, our guide for this year-long sermon series in the book of Acts, uh, Jennings says that what happens here sets the template for the movement and for any movement that is of Jesus. He says, we saw it in the civil rights movement and we see it in movements today. There will always be threats because threats are the current are the central currency of this world. 
Threats reflect the anxieties of the powers and principalities having migrated in the hearts of those who believe that they must control religious and political movements. And he says this, hear this, Jennings says, we should never marvel at threats. We should marvel here at the action of God witnessed in this template setting moment. And the action that we should marvel at. God's people pray, God responds, and the Holy Spirit fills God's people. That is what we marvel at. That is what we strive for when we say, let's be bold. Truly, this is what Hope Hell's Kitchen strives for when we say one of our core values is fearlessness. Because actually, our value is not just fearlessness, but it is spirit-led fearlessness. Fearlessness that we would lead in our community with. We would lead with wherever God has called us through prayer resting on the Holy Spirit. Not fearlessness for our own sake, or even simply for the sake of this one church, but fearlessness for the sake of God's kingdom as led by the Spirit. When we want to be bold, when we want to feel the urge to be bold for God's sake, maybe it's with a family member, maybe it's with a coworker, maybe it's with a system or institution in which you work, maybe it's with yourself, something you're struggling with personally, day in and day out, whatever it is, when we need to be bold for God's sake, we should marvel at what we see here. We should use Peter and John as the template for our own movement of boldness. We should pray. And just as Peter and John embody, we should pray in community. And we should pray for boldness in the face of threats or uncertainty or discomfort. Now, I know it's easy to, to maybe talk about this, <clears throat> but where can we find encouragement for this? I think we can find that encouragement in these verses too. We actually see it in how Peter and John stand while they're being judged. They didn't know if they were going to be freed. They didn't know if they would be executed or beaten or kept in jail forever. Their boldness was not because they knew they would be released from jail and they'd be reunited with their friends. But what they did know, what they were absolutely certain of, was that no matter what kind of judgment they faced on this earth, the God that they were teaching and proclaiming, Jesus Christ, he had already faced judgment on their behalf. Verse 28, they say, whatever your hand, God, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, in other words, God, you are in control. And rather than feeling complacent in that reality, or rather than sitting idly by in that truth, Peter and John are free to be bold in the face of threats, to be bold in the face of earthly judgment. Jesus Christ faced the powerful. He was arrested. He ended up in exactly the same kind of place that Peter and John ended up in in this passage. He proclaimed the power of God, his Father. He healed miraculously. And the religious, the political, the social elites, they were threatened. But by the time Peter and John are in this place, 
Christ has gone before them. Christ has already stood in the place of the judged. Christ's judgment led to his execution, to his death, and that, and that led to his resurrection. And as we saw in the opening book of Acts, that led to his ascension, to the gift of the Holy Spirit being thrust upon God's people. Jennings says Jesus didn't try to escape judgment, but he seized it. Jesus seized judgment so that when his followers face similar threats and similar judgment, their boldness might be rooted in the reality that Christ has already taken our place as the judged. And then when Peter and John might need a bit of reminding about this, they return to their friends, to their community, and they pray. Jennings says there is no such thing as individual boldness for the followers of Jesus. Yes, each of us, each disciple, we can and we need to be bold on our own individually. But as, as, as he says, that boldness is always a together boldness, a joined boldness, a boldness born of intimacy in community. That's what Peter and John do. They pray together, and together they ask for this boldness. It is the template for their movement in the first century, for the movement of this growing church. And it is the template for our movement today, for the movement of kingdom, for the kingdom of God in New York City, even for the movement of Hope Hell's Kitchen. Now, I said there were two words that really hit me in this passage, and I know I've dedicated much of our time to the first word, to boldness. But that's because the second word is one we've actually looked at before, just a few weeks ago, when we were in the last few verses of Acts chapter 2, the word common. And I love that we're slowly walking through this book because it allows us to really saturate ourselves in the words and what was happening in the first century. And here in verses 32 through 37, we're reminded of what happened in Acts 2, verses 42 to 47 about the people of God coming together and having all things in common and sharing in their possessions and giving to those in need and breaking bread and spending time in prayer. You see, that, though, though we often like to lift up those verses as sort of the, this is the template for community. That wasn't a one-off experience. In this morning's passage, we are reminded about the power of this boldness in community, that this joined boldness leads to one heart and one soul as we see, that this joined boldness leads to God's people having everything in common. And that through all of this, in verse 34, we're told there was not a needy person among them. Land, houses, anything and everything was distributed to each as they were in need, verse 35. How about that? How about that? God sees the faith of his people. He hears their prayers he shakes the very ground they are on in response to those prayers. He fills them with the Holy Spirit. He grants them boldness. And instead of growing to take control of the powerful, instead of growing to take control of the government, this community grows and connects their resources with the needs of their brothers and sisters. This notion of, of the common I would say it is even more powerful than that of boldness. That the Spirit fills the people with boldness, but the Spirit, God and God's love for His creation, it is fully realized, it is fully seen by the world in the common. 
this is where God's church lives. Not in earthly strength, not in earthly power, but in spirit-filled boldness and courage and in having one heart and one soul together and having all things in common so that no one would live in need. And our passage wraps up with the beginning of us seeing this become even clearer in the person of Joseph, of Cyrus, or Barnabas, who comes from far away, but no doubt the, the word of this Christ is spreading. He comes from far away, he sells his land, and he brings his earnings to this community. And that's where we end today. That's where our story ends. Boldness and common. I believe we find these two things, or rather, I believe we are led to these things when we come together at the Lord's table. The table that reminds us of who Christ is, that proclaims his death and resurrection and ascension, that in the face of anything and everything this world throws at us, anything and everything we might be facing today, that in the face of all of these things, Christ has come before us. He has faced these things before us. He stands today as the cornerstone, and he invites us to grow in boldness in him and to grow in communion with one another here at the Lord's table. One heart, one soul at the table. Boldness to proclaim together that Christ is risen, that Christ is ascended, that Christ is the Lord of our lives today. And so we come to this table together to, to make this proclamation, to make this proclamation through our, our own confession and repentance and through our striving toward reconciled relationships in our lives. Because remember, this is not an individual boldness that we seek, but it is a joined boldness. It is a together boldness. It is a common boldness. And we come to this table together, joined and together. But before we do that, and before we rush to this table, we pause for a moment for a brief time of reflection, for a chance to offer up our own repentance, our own confessions, our own cries to God, to think through those in our lives who we may be living with unreconciled, and begging God to fill us with boldness to speak His Word, to live His Word into those relationships. There's no formula here. There's no clear-cut way to do this. You can pray, you can sit, you can clear your head, see how God might be speaking to you. But whatever you feel comfortable with, whatever you feel God leading you toward at this moment, as we get ready for the table, whatever you do, let's use the template that Peter and John and this first century community gives us. And let's pray to God and ask him to fill us with the Holy Spirit right here and right now as we get ready for the Lord's Supper. So just... In a moment of silence, just sit back and reflect on this as we get ready for communion. 